Welcome into the Crawford Talks on the first day of June 2020. I'm Mike Meltzer. He is the Astros beat writer for The Athletic, Jake Kaplan. And we have a kind of a three-part podcast for you to kick off the week. We're going to spend probably most of our time discussing the latest updates in the negotiation between baseball and the Players Association. Also, we're going to have some quick hitters as well. What the Astros are doing and not doing with minor league players. That's been a topic over the course of the last couple of days. And plus, let's say there is a season and let's say there is going to be an expanded roster. What will that look like for the Astros? So we'll get into all of that. But Jake, I think we have to begin with the latest in the negotiation which is the players union after taking five days has given a counter proposal to the owners as far as what a season is going to look like in 2020. Here are the quick details and then we'll dive in and go back and forth. The players want to play more games. The owner's proposal is 82. The players want to play 114, a season that would begin June 30th end on October 31st. Again, regular season, so playoffs will be starting in November. A salary deferral, let's say there's a second wave of COVID-19, postseason canceled, that means their salaries for veteran players, I think guys making over $10 million, deferred to the next two Novembers. 114, that is 32 more games than what the owner's proposal is of 82. And they threw in a couple of different other sweeteners as well. The union would give additional access for TV broadcasts, whatever exactly that's defined as. They want to have some kind of like offseason all-star game or home run derby in the offseason. I have no idea what that means. We'd have two years of expanded of expanded playoffs. And they also had some interesting de- details, Jake, about players opting out of playing for different risk factors. If it's a high-risk player who chose not to play in 2020, assuming there's a season, they would get paid. If it's not a high-risk player who just decided, hey, I don't want to play for whatever reason in 2020, that player would not get paid, but he would get his service time. So I think the bottom line number is the games in the regular season. The players want to pay 114 and get paid the same prorated amounts. What was your initial or biggest takeaway from the player proposal, Jake? Yeah, I guess my biggest takeaway was that I don't think this is going to push the needle forward that much. Um, maybe slightly. Uh, I think there's aspects of it that, that, uh, MLB might agree to like the, I mean, I, I think MLB is kind of on record as wanting expanded playoffs. So like that seems fine for both sides. Um, I think the deferrals are like uh, what we've taught. We talked about the deferrals last week, right? As like an, a logical compromise, yes. but we, we were talking more for um, in, in any event, this is just if the playoffs have to be canceled um, I really like the the players opting out if they don't if they're high risk or they don't uh, feel comfortable playing. I think that's that's good, and I can't see MLB uh, pushing back on that. I mean, maybe they will. Maybe they'll surprise us. But uh, my, I guess my my big bigger picture takeaway is like I don't really, um, I don't know. I'm not optimistic that that's going to lead to an imminent deal. I think there's still a long way to go here. I'm with you on that. I don't think it's a very serious counteroffer. Now, Jake, you know I'm very pro-player on this. I think I've been like 95 to 98% on the player's side. But it still feels to me, 
as far as where this negotiation is, I feel like if this was the equivalent of like a football field and the 50 yard line was an actual deal where both sides meet, I still like both teams are like running both sides are like trying to decide if they want to run out of the end zone. Like, I think that's right. where we're kind of at. I mean, realistically, they're not playing 114 games in the regular season. I just don't see any chance of that uh, because I think if there was a realistic chance of that, I think the owners would have probably proposed more games in 82. Uh, I just can't see. I know it, it feels like a lot of America is sort of trying to just get over and move past COVID-19. And I understand the frustration, but like, we're not playing 114 games. We're not starting on June 30th and ending on October 31st. I, I just can't see that part happening. Yeah, I mean, I, if the owners aren't going to have already said they don't want to pay the players an 82-game prorated salary, I can't see them all of a sudden agreeing to a 114-game prorated salary. Exactly. Uh and you can argue whether they should or not, but that's that's not the point. I mean, the point is like it, you're going the the opposite direction here um, in terms of games played. I think ultimately the owners probably want to get the playoffs in so that they get the TV money from the playoffs, right? Um, whether that takes 82 games or 50 games, I think. That's what they ultimately want, right? Because they claim they're losing money on regular season games if there's no fans in the stands. Um, if you know whether you believe that or not, I, I don't think I do, but uh, that's what I don't you're saying. So, so um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm re really fascinated to see their response. Um, I I think it actually makes sense that the the MLB stance to finish the playoffs around the time you normally would finish the playoffs because of the the threat of a a second wave of the coronavirus. Um, but I get where the players are coming from and, and they want to fit more games in, so they extended it by a month. So um, I don't know. Where, where do you stand on that part of it, the schedule, you know, playing baseball into November part of it? Well, hmm. I, I'm, I'm of a mix. Like, I'm not – let me put it this way. I think that playing baseball games in November – is more realistic than playing 114 games if that makes any sense to you like i'm not i'm not overly against it i think that they would need to be flexible when it comes to where they're playing those games now if we're going with no fans at all in 2020 then you can just move those games to where weather is not as much of a factor um part of my answer jake why i'm not being definitive on it is i still want to see exactly how we can have a regular season. Like I, I'm going to err on the side of optimism. I'm, I'm talking about COVID-19 here. I'm not talking about the economic part, just, you know, with the testing and all these different protocols, just going from July to November, like, can they even make it that far without some sort of outbreak? I, I'm not even really against, for example, the NBA starting in late July. I know there's been a lot of criticism. Of the NBA people are saying, well, they're going to run into football. And I'm like, okay, I understand that the NBA starting in late July seems like a while when it feels like they might be able to start on around July 4th if they really wanted to. But I'm not going to criticize the NBA for possibly running into football with the same consideration. I think kind of baked into your question, does baseball want to extend into November? Well, yeah, I get there's the football concern, but... I'm more worried about like, can they actually play through a season? Can they actually right. make it with all these protocols as opposed to, boy, they're going to get buried by Sunday night football on November 5th kind of mentality.
Yeah, I agree with you. I, I wasn't even thinking of that um, because I, I think if MLB cared about that, they would have had a deal already, right? Because they're they're losing time that they would have the sports landscape to themselves right now. Okay, good point. Um, I was thinking more flu season, um, ah. you know, and, and cold weather, and it makes sense to get this, you know, playoffs in as early as you can. But I do think it's interesting that the players are at least willing to give up a, a month of their off season leading into 2021, right? Like they'll have one less month to um, prepare, rest their bodies and prepare for the next season. Um, assuming the next season goes on, you know, as a season normally would, uh, which is, you know, quite an assumption probably on my part. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think um, there's a lot of different elements to this deal that make it really interesting or this proposal, I should say, um, that make it really interesting. And one that's kind of overlooked is the two years of extended expanded playoffs. Yes. Um, and let's presume both sides agree on that. You know, you know, it's not as urgent news as ever, anything else on this proposal in terms of like when's baseball coming back. But um, it's interesting because the CBA is up after 2021. So if they're agreeing to two years of expanded playoffs for 2020 and 2021, I mean, I would expect that expanded playoffs are would be here to stay, which is interesting. And that's something, Jake, that I think is a concession to the owners because that's what they wanted based on their proposal in February. I don't know if that was a formal one or one that was just kind of released to the media. Uh, and that was the one... Remind me of the exact details. It was basically... I know it was a deal where you had multiple wild cards and you had... What, do you remember the exact number of teams that would make the playoffs in each league? You're asking me to look, think back to February? I know. It um. feels like it's... I know it's, let's see, now four months ago, but it feels like it's like 15 months ago. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a long time ago. I don't remember the exact... I think it was coming out around the same time as a lot of other stuff related to the Astros sign-stealing scandal as well. So I, I can't... I found it. I, I can't claim to have paid a, a super amount of attention to it. All right, here we go. Th this was a poor job by me. Now I, now I remember after looking it up. So basically, it is a 14-team playoff where you would have three division winners. Okay, so three division winners. That makes sense. Four wildcard teams, and only the division winner with the best record gets a first-round bye. So that that math obviously makes sense. So so three division winners, the best one gets a buy. Uh, the best wild card team, I guess, in that case, is hosting. And I also think there was some element, Jake, if I recall, where like there might have been some select your opponent kind of yeah. uh, little wrinkle into this whole thing. I honestly, I, I I'm sometimes old school, but I didn't I didn't really overly mind this. And I think especially for this, if it's going to be a shortened season, yeah, I think expanding the playoffs makes sense. And then as you mentioned. Going into 2021, yeah, I think it's a legit, I guess, I, I don't know if I phrase it a, as a concession as I have, but it's something I think the owners are going to like. I'll put it that way. Yeah, it's more opportunity for them to um, make more money, right? And that's ultimately what it comes down to for them. So, um, yeah, I think I, I'm more of an old school person with the playoffs, too. I think baseball playoffs are, are you know plenty great the way they are. But if they're trying to make up some of the money they're losing, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, if in a more localized way of thinking about it, it would 
hurt the Astros in 2020 and 2021, or at least in 2020, maybe not 2021, but probably help them uh, after that, right? Agreed. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's obviously like in a very down the list on um, on this proposal in terms of like what matters on June 1st, but I just thought it was interesting that the players were were open to that. Let me ask you this, Jake. Let's say they came to a deal this week. Would you be shocked or would you be surprised? Um, what's the difference? <laughs> well, I think the difference is I, I am very big on distinctions in those kind of words. Shock to me is like I could not have seen something happening. Surprised is like, hey, th- I didn't expect this to happen, but this is really nice. I'm <laughs> um, shocked, I think. I mean, I'd be shocked if anything happened before Friday. Okay. That way. Um, I, I yeah, I think we probably need to take a step back from our our previous kind of way of looking at it, which was June first uh, as a soft deadline, which clearly wasn't really actual anything because they're not close on June the morning of June first, and you know I've heard other people refer to June fifth, uh, which is Friday. As another soft deadline, I think until anyone sets a hard deadline, nothing's going to get done, right? Like, that's how this works. Trade. There's a reason the July 31st trade deadline, you see a majority of the trades mm-hmm. within, within 72 hours of the actual deadline, right? Um, the days of the Astros trading for Carlos Baltron in June are not, you know, you don't see that anymore. Um, the proactive moves. So I think they need to set a hard deadline. Uh, I don't know who sets that. Um, but, you know, until they do that, I, I have a hard time seeing this moving forward based off of the last week of proposals that we've seen. I think the tricky thing is, when you look at this, Jake, is I don't know if that, I don't know if there is a firm deadline in anybody's mind right now because and obviously the owners are not a monolith they're they're kind of negotiating as one for obvious reasons but i'm sure there are some owners who do not want to play a season i'm sure there are some owners who fall in the middle category and i'm sure there are some owners who would play a season if it was 60 games or 40 games and so i think trying to establish a a drop dead deadline is going to be tricky off the top of my head, I think a drop dead one feels like it would be like mid to late June, somewhere in that range. I don't know what I think of this negotiation because I I still don't think both sides are truly negotiating yet. I don't think there's been a proposal that is even close to, oh yeah, the other side's going to actually consider this. I do think there are some elements of the latest proposal by the players that will intrigue the owners or at least set the basis for what we're going to see in 2020, assuming uh, there is a season. I just I don't know if we're really genuinely negotiating yet. At the same time, though, if you told me that as we're recording this podcast, they somehow came to a deal that actually wouldn't shock me. It would surprise me a lot, but I I would not be surprised if there is any point at which both sides kind of came to their senses and got a deal done. That's where I'm at mentally on this. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's almost like both sides and particularly the MLB side, who was kind of the, the one who started the negotiations in terms of making the first offer offer or two, um, it seems like they're treating it like it's a collective bargaining agreement and not the middle of a pandemic where time is of the essence, right? Yes. Like, 
I, I could understand like the hard stances if it was the CBA. And I get that this will have an impact on the next CBA. Um, but it's not a CBA negotiation. It's trying to figure out a way to play baseball this season in, after or in the middle of a pandemic and after um, being delayed for, I, I don't even know how many weeks now, <laughs> uh, almost three months. So, um, I mean, uh, yeah, so that, Jake, I, I don't know. To that point, not to cut you off, but to that point, how is it possible? And, and again, I've been pro player on this. How is it possible the players take four to five days to respond? We don't have four to five days, especially for a proposal that is not going to be accepted by the owners in, in almost any way. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's like a minimum of three days between every counter offer on either side right now. It's, yes. It's not exactly showing a sense of urgency here, um, which again is like what would happen in a CBA negotiation. And it's like you have to wonder how much different this would be if the CBA wasn't up next year, if it say it's three or four years down the road, good point. I think it, I think it would be a lot different. But you know, the future at the sport of the sport is is at stake in a lot of ways, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, but ultimately, I think both sides have to realize like people want to see baseball this year and um, stop treating it like it's a CBA and and more like you know comp- compromise. It's the middle of a pandemic and. Uh, make it happen. You asked me a question last week, I think on Thursday's episode, which I wasn't happy with my response to. So I just wanted to elaborate real quick. You asked me, well, as an attorney, what would I advise both sides? And and I gave my answer on the owner side, which is I I don't think that crushing the other side on a deal is oftentimes good for the long term of the relationship. I stand by that Mm -hmm. part. I I wasn't happy with like the way I kind of tailed off the answer. I think from a player standpoint, um, you want to avoid what's kind of called the anchoring effect, which is like if you anchor to a certain number, then the whole negotiation is kind of tethered to that. But I've always been taught, Jake, in a negotiation from, a, I guess, a legal standpoint is when the owners do something like, hey, Mike Trout, and this is off the top of my head. I, I apologize if these numbers aren't exact. But if Mike Trout is making prorated like 19 million this year for 82 games and he would make six million dollars under the owner's first real proposal, my comeback, if I were the players, would be, where are you coming up with those numbers? Like, hey, you're proposing this, and you came up with, he, hey, Mike Trout's making six. Well, can you tell me, why is Mike Trout making six and not $3 million or $9 million? Like, where are you coming up with your numbers? I guess, in other words, you can say it as open your books, but it's not really saying, hey, completely open your books. It's saying, you have these numbers that you're throwing out at us. Please justify these numbers. Where are you coming up with these numbers? That's what I would do if I was the if I was the union. And that's kind of what Max Scherzer did in his tweet last was it Thursday night or Wednesday night. Um, yep, I think it was Wednesday night. Um, it really is open in the books, though. Like do you, that's what they need. That's what they want um, because they the players want the owners to prove that they are in as much distress as they say they are um, and need the players to take some of the loss rather than the owners just taking all the losses. So uh, it it often does come back to just open the books. But, uh, you know, I I don't know. My optimism level has definitely waned in recent days, Um, although it does change every day. Like I I think I had a conversation on Wednesday or Thursday that I I told someone, oh, I think like 70% baseball's back. And then a day later, I'm like, oh, 50%. (laughs) So probably don't listen to me on anything, but um, 
it's just, I think it's it's such a, a fluid situation every day, and you could tell that if you go back and listen to each of our episodes in the last six oh yeah weeks and when we talk about it. Well, here's where I'm at. Uh, I was telling a few friends this weekend, Jake. I'm still more on the optimistic side, and and here's why. And it's not really a tangible thing. It's just, Jake, I cannot imagine what it would be like to hold a press conference in which Rob Manfred and Tony Clark in their individual press conferences announce in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of everything going on right now in the United States of America, that they can't play a season because they couldn't get to a deal on the money. When I think about those press conferences, like, I, I don't even know how, I don't even know how you would put those on. Like, I don't even, and again, I've been very pro player so far, but when maybe, it gets, maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, maybe they wouldn't, but it's like, like at some point there would be, need to be some kind of announcement and somebody, some authority figure saying something into a microphone on the record. I can't imagine delivering that message with everything going on and plus from a sports perspective the nba coming back the nhl coming back and football going full steam ahead i can't imagine delivering that kind of news and that's why i remain optimistic yeah it would be a terrible look for baseball if the nba can come back which it looks more likely than not right yep and the nhl more likely than not it looks like um and 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 the nfl's Seems like it wants to go full steam ahead and no MLB. That would just be a terrible uh, look for the league. Um, and that's ultimately why I think I agree with you that like eventually they will come to a deal. Um, I'm holding out optimism that in that way, but you also have to be realistic. And it's June 1st and, I, and they haven't come to a deal yet and they still seem pretty far apart. Agreed. Yeah, I, I still the, the part that I'm not happy about, Jake, is it doesn't seem like a true negotiation yet. There are little parts of the players latest proposal that kind of are, but we're still not looking at offers that are, I think, eminently close to being accepted by the other side. Other things going on and also localizing it to the Astros. Jake, a lot of people, a lot of teams, I should say, release minor league players, especially, I think, Thursday and Friday as the calendar kind of turned and the financial mm -hmm. situation baseball changed. The Astros did release some minor leaguers. What are the details on that? Yeah, they released, I think it was 17 or 18 uh, minor leaguers. Uh, which is roughly around the size of what like an end of spring training round of releases would be. Okay. Um, for them, uh, I, I think it, it was less last year and a lot more the year before that, according to Baseball America's records. Um, you know, none of them were big prospects um, by any means, but, um, you know, I think it's uh, worth talking about whether or not this should have happened, uh, you look at a team like the Royals, who presumably had has that same you know dozen or, or more players that they might have released uh, in a normal situation. That they they decided to not make a single release because of the situation, and I and I applaud uh, Royals GM Dayton Moore for doing that and and their ownership because. It isn't a normal spring training situation where you where you release players, um, and I think considering that and 
keeping these players on was a really um, great thing that the Royals did. Um, you know, unfortunately for, for these minor leaguers, I think they were one of only either one of one, or I think the twins maybe also did it. There the most, most of the teams um, released players like the Astros did. So um, yeah, a tough break for those, those players, obviously, because you know, it's getting, you know, where do you go from here if you're them? Yes. Do you think this is a James Click decision or a I'm I'm talking about who they decide to release or a James Click heavily influenced by, you know, the guys who have been involved in scouting and developing these specific prospects? Um, I mean, I think it would have to be a collaborative thing because he hasn't been around to see any of these players. Um, you know, it's all it's all play it's a lot of it's actually a, a pretty wide range of players from late round draft picks to a fourth round pick in 2016 to younger um, Latin American signees. Um, so I think that it would based, it would, it would have to be based off of information that the people with the team longer than a couple months have gathered uh, based off the player's performance. And they probably came into spring training with some sort of idea that these players were on the chopping block, so to speak. And, um, you know, on one hand, the players lost the opportunity to, you know, um, change their mind in a spring in a minor league spring training. On the other hand, they did get a couple extra months of pay um, if they were going to get released. But yeah. I don't know. I like the Royals way of, of doing it. And, you know, it's a pandemic. Everyone's hurting. Um, it doesn't it's it's not a ton of money for the teams by any means to continue to pay these minor leaguers. I mean, they're getting four hundred dollars a week. Uh, or in the Nationals' case, three hundred dollars a week. <laughs> yes. So, um, <laughs> so I, I think like it, it. It's worth it's worth thinking about what what was what these teams did right, or was you know should they have, more teams have done what the Royals did? Yeah, I like the I like the Royals' idea the most, obviously, especially compared to what uh, the A's decided to do uh, with their minor leaguers, which I thought was just profoundly ridiculous because they were really cutting off their nose to spite their face uh at the same time i am happy that the astros are paying their minor leaguers the ones who have stayed through the end of august i think that is good and necessary i do think sometimes not to go all existential on you but if some of these guys they truly felt like we're not going to develop and be up with a big club i i wonder for their life maybe it's better to have that happen now as opposed to later on although the problem with that line of thinking is now is like the worst time ever to look for a job basically in the last you know 80 or 90 years so i'm sympathetic from that standpoint i i was glad though jake that they are paying the minor leaguers that they have through the end of august i thought that was a necessary move by jim crane yeah, so we should probably mention that in case anyone missed it. The Astros did announce that on Friday, I think, that yes. they will pay uh, uh, the 400 a week for the minor leaguers through August 31st. Uh, or is there 31 days in August? It was, it's through August. However many days are in August, it's through August, which is about when the minor league regular season would have ended. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's... You know, it is a tough time to be a minor league free agent, especially because the next time there's minor league baseball, might there might be 40 fewer affiliates, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the kind of in the back of everyone's mind is the idea of contraction. The MLB wants to, to get rid of a lot of these teams and make things more efficient. And so that's a ton fewer minor league jobs. 
Um, and you've got obviously the five round draft coming next week, which is 35 rounds fewer than, than, than usual. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough, tough time for, for minor league baseball, for sure. Now, one thing that we want to discuss for a few minutes is the possibility. Let's say everything goes well. Let's say the union and the owners come to a deal. What's definitely going to happen because of COVID-19 and some other factors is an expanded roster. So instead of 26, it's going to be most likely 30. And Jake, I know you've been asked this, and I want to discuss this here on this episode. Let's say it's a 30-man roster, the one that you know actually travels and can play in every single game. From an Astro standpoint, who are some of the guys who are going to be making you know the major league money as opposed to being in the minor leagues if there are those extra, I think it's four spots on the roster this year in 2020? Yeah, uh, I got that question in a mailbag that ran Thursday. Uh, check that out if you haven't on the Athletic. Um, uh, first of all, like we don't know. So when it was a twenty-six man roster, it, it was pretty much determined that you had to have thirteen and thirteen in terms of the breakdown between position players and pitchers. If it's a thirty-man roster, I don't know if it's definitely fifteen and fifteen or sixteen and fourteen pitchers to position players. So that's part of the unknown. But the group of players uh, who would benefit most on the position player side would be the Abraham Toros and the Garrett Stubbs uh, of the world. Um, Taylor Jones, uh, a first baseman who can play a little bit of like left field, would be another candidate. Jack Mayfield. Um, so like it's, it's a lot of the names on the position player side that you would expect. The Astros don't have a ton of depth uh, on their 40-man roster already Yep. Uh, on position players in terms of like they've, I don't think any outfielders who are on their 40-man that won't be on their major league team. So um, it's kind of, you know, Toro, Stubbs, and then and then um, would probably be the likeliest, and then Jones Mayfield. Um, in terms of pitching, that's where it's a little more interesting. You know, there's a lot of players bubble when we were talking in March about like, projected opening day rosters when it was going to be 26 man like the Brian Brian Abreu um is a good one um yeah you know, I like Joe, him like it's their their pitching's kind of set but you could there's there was that group of pitchers who was going to start in triple a um that could have been maybe ready um Christian Javier Blake Taylor Cy Sneed, like those type of guys. I, I was asked about Forrest Whitley in the mailbag. I don't think he fits in there yet. I think he has to show more in, in the minors, um, which would make him a candidate for like a taxi squad situation. But um, I think the most intriguing name out of all these that would be at that would benefit is Brian Abreu. Because he's a guy who it feels like they're still trying to figure out what he's going to be. But you saw last season when he was up in the big leagues that this guy's got some serious talent. I mean, I, I agree with your overall breakdown. Just looking at the roster, uh, it feels like, okay, if you're going to have 30 guys, you'll carry a third catcher. You would have the guys we saw last year a little bit, Toro and Mayfield. But what will be really interesting, Jake, is the pitching, especially because I have this bad feeling that even if there is a deal, uh, and I'm going to, again, assume there is a deal between both sides, that I think they might drag it on for a while. And I think we genuinely might see like a pretty rushed spring training in a situation where 
the first like month of the season, they like we're gonna have starting pitchers going like four innings, and so mm-hmm. I think that would open up the door for a. I'm not putting these guys all into the same category, but a Brian Abreu, a maybe a Christian Javier, uh, a Perez, somebody like that, where they need to you know get some innings out of some extra guys because the starters aren't uh, in a situation that where they're fully ready to pitch six and seven innings every fifth day. Yeah, basically, if you're a uh on the the fringe of like starter long reliever you're making the team right like Good you're point. austin pruitt uh who's gonna make the team anyway but fromber valdez probably a better one to say like yes he, he might have not made the astros uh otherwise but now i would assume he would because he can pitch multiple innings um he can start if they need him to uh you know joe biagini Cy sneed those type of guys relievers who can pitch multiple innings uh, I think you're right. Like spring training, three weeks does not seem to be enough after this long of a layoff. And um, you know, it's, I think teams are going to be extra cautious with their starting pitchers um, early in the season if there is a season. Yeah, I think it's going to be real interesting because I'm the more we go, the more we go, Jake, the more I'm feeling like there's a real chance I'll just kind of like drag this out, reach a last minute deal. And we're going to get a completely rushed spring training where Dusty Baker is going to have to sit there and figure out, okay, how do I how do I get, you know, McCullers, Verlander, Granke ready to go in like in two or three weeks? I, I think we might be leading down that path right now. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> like I, you almost feel like it, it warrants like a six weeks, and if you're gonna go three weeks, like I, I don't know. I, I've said this before, but like we have to account for the fact that there's probably gonna be new injuries um, around the game. Absolutely, that pop up from this, Jake. You have a story that has been published today about. I, I kind of wish I was in Houston for this, but it was a few years before my time. It was the the, the famous tombstone that the Houston Chronicle uh, put on their front page of the sports section, which was in the 2005 season, June 1st. So this is now, what anniversary, Jake, is, is this? Is it the 15th anniversary? 15th, yeah. The big the big one five. <laughs> the big one five. Uh, what did you find when you went back into this? Because obviously the, the whole deal for people who may not know is, the newspaper buried the baseball team figuratively, literally, and then they went back to win the National League. Yeah, for the you know, it was the first World Series appearance in franchise history. I mean, they the team was really bad at that point. They weren't hitting at all. And um Lance Berkman was just coming off of uh an ACL surgery and they had lost Carlos Baltron and Jeff Kent. Like it wasn't it wasn't looking good. You know, I think that they were 19 and 32 at the time that this ran. So that means they were 18 and 32 when they decided to run it. Um, it was obviously a little early and um, you know, this, I spoke to the sports editor at the time, a guy named Fred Fowler, who's still around in as a, <clears throat> as a radio host. And um, he said they were trying some different stuff at the time, trying to be a little more cutting edge and, and maybe bring in some younger readers but um, clearly, you know, it, it was June 1st is too early to bury a team. And we saw that again last year with, with the Nationals. I mean, they had a very similar start, right? Yes. Here's, here's one thing I keep thinking about, Jake, when I think about the, uh, the tombstone. And I think you would know this. I, keep, I always think about this when I think about this story. 
why don't newspapers do things like this anymore? Like, I, I understand we could do a whole, you know, podcast series on the fall of newspapers in America. I get that. But I love this kind of stuff. I'm just thinking about my career. If I was doing a, a daily show in Houston in 2005, I wake up on June 1st, I get the newspaper, and the Chronicle has buried the Astros with a tombstone. Like, that's the lead story. I mean, that's the lead story. That's That gets the juice flowing. People are into that sort of thing. Why don't newspapers do this kind of stuff anymore? Great question. Um, I mean, first of all, like, I think... I think they probably try to. It's, it's, um, you know, if you did a tombstone now, you'd probably be accused of being a copycat, right? But it's got to be something um, else. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the most, uh, you know, creative person in the world, but, uh, you know, I'm sure they do. And we just don't, you know, see it in Houston as much, maybe. I don't know. Like, I think, um, yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't really have a good answer like, for I just, you. I th- here's what I like. There's like you know this as a historically like in your past a newspaper guy. There's something about the newspaper, the ink, all that kind of stuff that like there's a certain amount of power to it. That when the Chronicle in 05 was like, "Hey, the Astros are dead." There's a certain there there's a certain amount of legitimacy into it and i feel like they could tap into it but they choose not to do that and i feel like i track these things but i don't i don't see any more tombstone kind of things in 2020 yeah no it's a it's a it's a valid point i think so like one thing i really i didn't i don't know if i knew this until i started working in houston but like the funny thing about there's a few funny things about the tombstone story the actual story itself written by Jesus Ortiz does not say that they're dead. It does not align <laughs> yeah. or match with the headline and the graphic. Like, and that's because he didn't believe in it. He didn't believe that they were uh, definitively done. He thought they were on life support, but you know, he, he did not think that they were done and didn't believe in it. And, and so um, it's interesting there. Also the story directly to the right of, of the tombstone is a game story by Brian McTaggart from the night before. Yeah. It says Astros find the formula as the headline. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. There, there uh, wasn't much uh, coordinate coordination there, I guess. And I understand that you're on deadline and also like you can't force a writer to write something he doesn't believe in. So that's good that they didn't, but um, I don't know. There's a lot of fun little wrinkles to the story and I would hope everyone uh, actually goes and reads it on The Athletic. Uh, I, one thing I didn't know that I learned uh, from the illustrator, um, uh, I'm going to botch his last name, but Robert Wunchy, Wunch, W-U-E-N-S-C-H-E. Uh, he told me that like about in like mid-July, they reran it with lightning striking the tombstone mm. and the headline was, Will Lightning Strike Twice for the Astros? Um so I, I, I never heard that part of it before. So that, I thought that was interesting. I didn't either. Okay. So, so they, so they kind of made it a, a running theme throughout the early yeah, part poke, of the summer. Yeah, fun at themselves. You know, like the, I think the Astros had a, the Astros had a monster July. Like they won like 13 to 14 at one point and really put themselves back into it with their July. So um, that was, you know, poking fun at themselves for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess my last point on this is, uh, and this could apply to, you know, the newspapers, radio, the athletic, or, you know, whatever uh, TV, like I, what's cool about it is 
Jake, it's like sort of an evergreen uh, something. It's an evergreen thing that the that the media outlet created that lingered and resonated with the audience and honestly for a long time to come like it's that's that's what i find cool about the tombstone i think it's one of the coolest things that i've seen in houston since i came here about 10 years ago yeah i mean people love um to talk about this stuff i mean this the the choke city headline that the chronicle ran yes exactly great Um, example great example yeah like that stuff i mean that's the stuff that it resonates and i think that and i know the sports editor who was behind the tombstone, he says that he was a, he, he considered that, you know, that if, if they were wrong and the Astros did come back and save their season, it would mean a lot of attention for the newspaper. Yeah, it's and, better. Um, he was right about that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it was fun to dive back into it. Um you know, definitely a story that I, I that probably an anniversary that probably would have been lost if there was baseball going on right now. Um, but in some ways, I was I was happy to get to write about it. He is Jay Kaplan. Make sure you check out that story about the 15th year anniversary, the 15 year anniversary of the famous tombstone in the Houston Chronicle. The story behind the Chronicle's infamous Astros tombstone. Check out Jake's great work and all the great work done on The Athletic. Make sure you subscribe, theathletic.com. This has been the latest episode of The Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast brought to you by The Athletic. <laughs>